I'm Cassidy Hall. I am Kevin Johnson. I'm Carl McCollman, and we are Encountering Silence. Encountering Silence is made possible by listeners like you. Please visit www.patreon.com slash encountering silence. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash encountering silence. To learn how you can be part of the circle and share in our efforts to bring silence into our all-too-noisy world. Ando is a poet, writer, and Zen lay monastic who has spent many years living a monastic life in the forest. In her own words, spending five years living quietly in the forest, I learned the Zen of forest, mountain and river, studied the poetry of the wind. She goes on to say, I'm passionate about the poetry of Zen, Chan and Taoist traditions. In particular, haiku, monoku, renku, free verse and fragments. She is writing a haiku memoir titled The Forest and will publish her first two poetry collections, Small Silences and Life As It Is in 2019. She's active on social media, and through her own Patreon page, she shares her poetry, which is luminous with both silence and light. Now teaching and sharing poetry in the practice of silence in 2019, she is opening Poetry Dojo, an online community for those seeking to explore the contemplative practice of poetry and silence in her company and walk the way of poetry. Originally from England, she now makes her home in Portugal and joined us via Skype for this conversation. Ando, welcome to Encountering Silence. Thank you. Poetry and silence, two topics that are near and dear to our hearts. So we often ask our conversation partners if you would be willing to share just a little bit of your story. And we usually ask, how did you first encounter silence? But we'll expand that for you. How did you first encounter silence and or poetry? Mm. I'd probably have to start with where I encountered Zen, which was back in art school when I was aged 19, a few years ago. <laughs> <laughs> When my art tutor told me that he saw me sitting on the floor making drawings and working with ink and paper and he could just see some Zen monks sitting there and that had I heard about Zen. And I was like, not really, I didn't know much about it. And he recommended Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, the Paul Reps book. And I bought that and I was busted then. <laughs> that, was, <laughs> that, that was me busted really. From there, from there on in, and I visited my first Buddhist centre in London, age 19, again, almost lived in community then. And it really rolled from there. Silence 
as a way of life came much later. That came, I had my butt kicked by a serious illness, (laughs) which um, took a, a lecturing career away from me and left me unable to walk much, to sit, to talk, to even read a book. I had to be read to. I had to receive Dharma through my partner reading to me. And I reached out for the depths of mindfulness practice to get me through the seven years that I was housebound and bedbound. Mm. And I say that was my longest session today. That's how I regard it. And it was um, didn't feel like it at the time, but that that's where the real deep connection came into my life. The Zen of illness. And the poetry began there too. The Zen of illness. Yeah, totally. There's a lot in that to be explored. Yeah. It's been my greatest teacher in this life, mm. sickness of the body. Mm. So it's, um, And yeah. I, I cut you off. You were about to say something about poetry there. Uh, poetry, um, haiku also came in as part of my recovery. So... I had been a university lecturer. I was a multimedia lecturer at universities in the UK, um, working with computers and all this jazz. It's why I'm able to put the materials together that I do now, because I was an art director and so on. As part of my recovery, I couldn't even look through the lens of a ca- uh, camera anymore um, because my l- eyes wouldn't stay steady enough to, mm. to focus. And so I had to give up all my creative tools. Everything was taken away. And as I became fit enough to sit up a little, just like this, this creative urge was there to do something. And I did a little tiny bit of painting, which was very haiku-like in its nature. It was very simple, very reduced. And then haiku started coming. And I think my first blog was in 2003. And I started sharing haiku then. And I don't even think I've got any of those. They may be on a hard drive somewhere in Wales or something. I don't know. Hmm. But um, that's that's where it came in. It was part of the healing. It seemed to come in to replace what was there before. And a lot of your work also seems to be influenced and deeply touched by nature. And I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the impact of nature in terms of how it's been silence for you and also how it's been an origin space for poetry perhaps and also your years spent as as a forest monk if you could first kind of tell us a little bit what that was and and um how that impacted you yes that's quite a big one isn't it (laughs) (laughs) okay let me think where to begin with that maybe to begin with how I came into the forest life and that phase of my life um, is a good place because it really, it kind of rushed in from there. I was living, after I was sick, I was living a pretty regular life to me, you know, living in a house with a partner and a dog and trying to rebuild my career like a fool. like an independent fool not no one's gonna hire me after seven years off (laughs) and so I kind of went back to doing the same kind of thing but on my own and then I realized I was well enough to travel 
having not been able to drive, walk, sit, lie down, uh, I would have white out vertigo if I moved around at all. And the moment I realized that I was fit to drive, I was like, okay, let's travel. I can't stare at four walls. I've got to be outdoors. I've done my retirement. I've done my later years. Now I've got to live my life and get outdoors. Mm, mm. And so we just jumped in a camper van and went off on an eight-month um, honeymoon, <laughs> which we called the Zen Road Trip because the van was called Zen. Um, she was called the Zen Bus. I converted a VW camper van from a van. So it was pretty low budget even back then. And that road just unfolded trip by trip. It started through house sitting and people would put a roof over our heads and we'd travel a bit further. And I ended up in the Picos de Europa, in the Pyrenees. And from lying in bed, I was running 12K up mountains and another 12K back down them. And I was increasing altitude each time. I think we went up to 2K. And I just, the moment I was up there on top of a mountain, the poetry really started to show up mm -hmm. because there was just this need to, it had to express through me. Mm. which is kind of what I was teaching today. I shared a link with you that you can explore. And it's actually about nature expressing through us as a poet and that the truest poetry is where we're not the poet. We're the vehicle for the poetry. Yeah, this reminds me of, um, are you familiar with uh, James Finley? Um, yes, yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, we've, we've actually spoken yeah, about him. Okay. And he says, um, the poet cannot make the poem happen, but the poet can assume the inner stance that allows the least resistance to the gift of the poem. Totally. I just love that. I mean, you just said that, you know, precisely, and it's so true and so powerful. I, I've kind of just discovered that this is not only my work now as a poet, but now as a teacher of other poets. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've got I've got Zen monks and Zen teachers and yogis and swamis and spiritual directors and all kind of people showing up on my courses at the moment, course at the moment. I'm finding that what's coming out to share with them is where the roots of my own work came from because it's my poetry that's drawn them to find out how, how do these small silences occur? How do these poems appear in the world? So it's me kind of going, well, actually, the only trade secret is silence and stillness mm. and getting out of the way mm. and hollowing the bamboo so the wind can blow through it. Mm. That's starting to sound like roomy. this is it. Right. This is and it. How much that, that getting out of the way is important in so many aspects of our lives. I mean, you know, the, it allows us to surrender to oceanic oneness with humanity with our lover with whatever um with the world totally. just that getting out of the way is just so huge i'm reminded of an early desert father evagrius who oh, said yeah. the monk the monk does not truly pray until he doesn't know he's praying right yes and so it's kind of in the same yeah. neighborhood the same and and we're circling around now because, and this is what I think uh, all of us here 
into it is that I think we're circling around that poetry is more than just the words. And, and, yes. and, and as you're talking about, you're teaching the class that I, who is it? Um, I, I just read recently and many people have said it, it might've been Jane Hirschfield. I don't know if you know her, the Buddhist po- yes. poet. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's others who've said it, that poetry, the word poesis from the Greek, it means to make. It, it has nothing to do necessarily with words on a page. So yes. the making, to how to make a life or how to live a life, or as Cassidy just said, how to unite and be with our, our friends, our lovers, you know, how to be with the world. How do you make that as you get out of the way? Uh, yeah. So. <clears throat> yeah. I, I have a poem I wrote quite some years ago, which is, You Are the Poetry of Life, Dance Song. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. There's no ownership to Mm. this life, Mm -hmm. uh, to this kind of life. Mm. So in your story, you talked about how you Zen came to you when you were 19. Did you you have anything? Was that like a shock or did you have something to ground that in? I mean, from a younger childhood, maybe a a childhood memory, um, a religious or philosophical or or. I don't know, something background, or was it just completely, did it come just out of the blue, this is brand new, what is this? It it was totally brand new to me. I was brought up as a Roman Catholic, mm. and I was educated as a Roman Catholic, and um, fought tooth and nail against that upbringing whilst I was in school, like, mm. like many a Catholic kid, actually. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. And actually, in recent years, I've gone back to my parents and gone, thank you so much for giving me that education because you gave me the ground on which my life was built. Mm. And, you know, the the value I can place in that now is so different. And again, you know, prayer and silent prayer was essential even as a child. And that was the bit I didn't kick against. Mm -hmm. It was going to the chapel at lunchtime and being rewarded with sweeties by this beautiful elderly nun who'd give the kids that went to the chapel at lunchtime for silent prayer a sweetie. Wow. But you'd already gone there before you discovered you got sweeties. <laughs> so actually, you weren't being, like, tempted in. You were being rewarded for mm. the fact you'd, you'd made a wise move. Mm. And she was just encouraging that. Um, and that, for me, is the most striking memory I have of that entire spiritual period of my life mm. until I actually walked out of a Catholic church aged 18 where I heard one sermon too many mm. that <laughs> and age 19 I was introduced to Zen and it it filled that kind of vacant space that had been left mm-hmm. you know that I wasn't comfortable to have nothing at mm. that time and it was very reassuring actually to find that there were other ways for me to explore this. Um, but it was very slow back then, that, that spiritual development. I was a book uh, Buddhist for, wow, I don't know. seems like decades back then. I suppose mm. I'm quite old. But, <laughs> mm. <laughs> but you, you did go to a Zen center or a Buddhist center yes, fairly early yeah, on. Yeah, I went to the London Buddhist center in Roman Road, um, which was Friends of the Western Buddhist Order then. There were very few Buddhist organizations in Britain at all. We're talking 1982. Mm. So, yeah. Yeah, there was little to choose from. 
Andrew, I'd love to talk to you a little bit more about your online work. It is yes. steeped in silence and contemplative life. And in the same breath, we all kind of are navigating that that paradox, right? Our our online work is steeped in silence and contemplative life. Could you talk a little bit about maintaining such incredible silence amid such a platform like the internet? I tend to concern my less myself less these days with outer silence and that the silence that's expressed in my work is coming from such a deep resource, a deep lake of silence that I've been able to access through the practice years of my life that it's it's just ever present. Mm. You know, and I could be on chat with somebody about some something someone's come to ask me on Facebook or an email someone's come to ask me, but what Whatever the question, I'm always able to speak from that place. Mm -hmm. And my work also speaks from that place. And it's why I've been able to do this 28-day um, program that I'm teaching at the moment because it's. I was talking to my partner today and it's like, this is my spiritual practice at the moment. This is my practice mm -hmm. is when I speak mm -hmm. and record and this conversation and when I have conversations, if I'm involved in spiritual direction work, it's the same source. At the same time, working with others, then I'm kind of guiding with more simpler principles, helping them find their way back to that source also. Because ultimately, for me, I don't see a difference between if I'm sitting zazen or if I'm on Facebook. Mm -hmm. I, I, there isn't a difference. I'm not quite there yet. <laughs> I'll tell you that, but, but your, your work is such a gift to draw me back to where I need to be. If that makes sense. Yeah. Even when I am, you know, online. So, so thank you so much for that. I, I'm wondering if you could share a little bit about what people could expect to, learn from you if they were to take a, a course from you? Okay. Nothing at all. <laughs> Sign me up. <laughs> yeah, we're ready. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm uh, number one deliverer of nothing. Mm. <laughs> That's really the intention. If there's an intention, it's to deliver nothing, to teach nothing other than to remind you who you are and to remind you how to return to that when you forget and to remind you that it's okay when you forget and that it's not a problem. It and is I'm hard sure to know. poetry not. comes in somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> Honest. <laughs> it is hard to not breathe deeply just listening to your voice. You know, something you said earlier reminded me of Thomas Merton when he was novice master, I think it's somewhere in one of his journals, he, he speaks to being novice master and, and working with so many people, but he says something to the effect of compassion has become my new solitude. And he was able to kind of, you know, reach down to that wellspring in order to, to give, um, which reminds me much of, of what you're doing. 
Yes. Our conversation will return after this brief moment of silence. Please take a breath and be present in the silence. I, I gave yeah. up my life for this. People talk about surrender, and I've, I've heard so many people ask teachers, maybe even myself at some point, what's surrender? How do I do it? You know, it's like you can't do it. It does you. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You can't do silence. Silence does us. Mm -hmm. we, we can't empty ourselves. Mm -hmm. Emptiness gets us out of the way. It absorbs us. I think why I think why that makes me so happy is that what I'm hearing from you is practical application of a long time, like you said, kind of immersed in the silence. You're calling on the reserves of that lake of silence that's available to all. And it is a very practical application. And that switch from uh, me doing and willing and achieving and going and grabbing and and then not. <laughs> That's the switch. And then, and then just not, you know, simple. and and but in, as simple as it is to say, just not easy. Uh, it's like, uh, what is it? You know, how hard is it to let go? You know, correct. how hard? to let go of this right right such a simple how much effort does it take a lot but, if you a lot if you don't want to let go yeah. of that pen <laughs> yeah you know i i was only speaking this week to someone about one of my early interjections with my first sam master and him saying you've got to take your hands off the steering wheel and i'm going how <laughs> how <But> how <laughs> And I'm like, I'm there, actually, like, this kid, how? And he's like, well, it's not that simple, actually. It's simple, but it's not simple. And I'm like, oh, okay, that feels better. That's <laughs> and it was like, but I'm just like, what? and then I'm going, what steering wheel? <laughs> right. And then this conversation was coming around a loop yesterday with someone else who's saying the same thing. You're going to say that steering wheel thing to me, aren't you? <laughs> I was like, you already know the answer. <laughs> I'm, and it's like, don't try. I'm reminded of a Zen saying that I have heard and, and I still reflect on. I mean, years ago, I heard it. Quit trying quit trying not to try quit quitting <laughs> yeah yeah there Finish. it is you know drop the pen don't drop the pen well i mean and it's oh, as not drop yeah it's as indo says uh if if you drop the pen you're still doing it so you have to allow yeah. the pen to drop itself yeah. Yeah. it'll do you yeah the pen has to it, drop itself it, yeah, 
if if it's to happen, it happens. If it's to do you, it does you. And uh, I'd, I'd like to hear a little bit more about the forest. Yeah. But just uh, how you came to be in the forest, what, how the forest surprised you, what it means to be embodied in the forest, to embody okay. silence, to embody poetry. I mean, again, these are big questions, so play with it however you'd like. But, okay. So let's start with how I came to meet the forest. 2012, I'd finally found my Zen master after all these years, since the 1980s, looking for a Zen master who wasn't in America. And it took until 2012. And I was like, oh, I've met, finally met my Zen master. And he trained me as a meditation and mindfulness teacher. And I immediately asked to train as a Zen teacher and became a trainee Zen teacher. And I was taught seven meditations. I won't um, bore anyone with the seven. <laughs> because only two of them captivated me. And one was um, the Who Am I koan, which I later discovered was uh, Ramana Maharishi's pathway. I then found it in the highest teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, where I'd been previously in my life but not come across it. Um, but I didn't know most of that then. I just had this koan. And I was supposed to do like a hundred of them. But he gave me this koan. It wasn't usually the first one, but I, I got lucky that was the koan. And I would go to him and say, why would I ever need another koan? Mm. If I can answer this, why would I ever need a koan curriculum? And he would just smile and say, keep going. And I'd go back with all my lovely answers and he'd drive you mad. <laughs> asking who are you, but no answer is good enough. And it absolutely caught me. But there was also another one that caught me, which was the teaching of Zen Master Bankai, or Bankei. This is where my lack of Japanese pronunciation um, shows itself. And Bankei meditated and sat Zazen for 21, 25 years, something like this, until he was raw. He was sitting on cliff edges and you name it. And in the end, he, he woke up quite unceremoniously, spitting some blood against the wall of a hut that he bricked himself into. And the moment he woke up, he said, you know, you don't need to do any of this. <laughs> you just need to realize that you already have the ever-present Buddha mind. And he brought everything back to awareness. And his teachings were like satsang. But I'd never heard of satsang at that time. And I just said I had to meet a living Bankai. I wanted a living lineage of Bankai. And it was like, forget about teaching these seven meditations until I can answer this koan. And I've met a living master in this lineage of Bankai. I can't teach anybody anything. It's not, I'm not going there. And the funny thing was the lineage I was in, the Zen master's teacher uh, in Japan, was Bankai's old hermitage. So my Zen master had trained and sat in his hermitage, and I had the chance to go visit if I'd have had the money. But there was no pull. There was nothing there. It was like a dead end to me. It was just that it wasn't there. It was, Bankai had been there, but the living presence wasn't there. And so I started looking. 
and good old uh, Google helped me with my journey, as he has many a person. And I started looking for a living teacher of Bankai's Unborn. And I came across the teachings of Muji. If you're familiar with Muji, he has an ashram here in Portugal. He's from Brixton. He's, um, or I can't say, is he Jamaican? Part Jamaican, part. Grew up in Brixton. I should know better. He was my teacher for like three years. <laughs> <laughs> he, was, he was my portal into the forest. Anyway, he kept coming up on videos and I would listen. It was like, ah, this, this, is, this is a living Bankai. It doesn't look like Bankai. doesn't teach Zen. But this, this is Bankai's teaching. I was sure of it. Absolutely sure. And so I asked for permission to go to a retreat with him from my Zen master, thinking you just go, yeah, sure, go on your seven-day silent retreat and come back. And uh, he didn't. He gave me an ultimatum. <laughs> instead <laughs> which was actually you've got three choices as I see it one is you forget about this and I was like mm -hmm. two we agree a trial separation for a period of time which was like one month three months and I was like okay didn't feel that either or you drop everything and I was like and I couldn't answer and for several weeks I couldn't speak I couldn't answer I, nothing and somehow in that period of my life before I knew it I found myself stood at a microphone in front of Muji on retreat looking down and going ah my feet answered mm. here I am and I was invited back to the ashram after the retreat to uh, offer service I wanted to help them create ebooks because I was able to design and build Kindle books back then, 2012. And I started doing the first ebooks for them at the ashram. And it's in the middle of the forest. It's in the place where nothing ever happens. It's called Alentejo, the region of Portugal. And you can drive 25 kilometers and not see a car. It's uh, people still use donkeys and carts and carry food on their heads. And even today, it's, it's something else. And you can see the Milky Way at night and shooting stars and just breathe the eucalyptus and the pine. And you walk through the dust. And he had a small growing ashram then, which is now massive and busy and full of hundreds of people, but back then there were maybe 40 or 50 of us, 20 in the winter, on a busy day, maybe 60 or 70. But it was just like Bankai, people living in little hut, huts, huts <laughs> in the forest. So Bankai, there were thousands of monks scattered around in the forest around him, up the mountain, down the mountain. And with Muji, it was tents and it was forest huts. And it just started like that. And I went back to Mallorca after doing my visit and because um, I was house-sitting, getting a property there. And I couldn't go back to building websites, which is <laughs> what I've been doing, and e-books. I just had to return. And I just returned. And then my partner was like, 
wow, you've changed. I want to, I want to go there. Hmm. <laughs> and so then she went and it was like, well, I want to go for five weeks. I want to do 40 days and 40 nights. I'm going to do this properly. <laughs> <laughs> and so she went. And before I knew it, we, we were living there. We were staying there. We were living either on the land there or on land nearby. And for a little time came and went, but mostly were there. And then it just built up and up. And it's a very simple life. It's half a bucket to a bucket of water per day for bathing and so on. No showers at that point. I still think there aren't, actually, because water's a big issue in Alentasia because of the forestry. And it was a silent community. So we, we lived and worked in silence. And just as in a monastery, it's an ashram. And in the office, um, you know, you would speak if we had business to attend to. But in every space, we had a bell we could ring um, if we felt the energy was too high. And, it, yeah, it was quite an amazing change for me as a working environment. But I learned to live in a different way with silence. And I'd experienced it part-time in um, Buddhist centers in the UK. And we'd had a practice of our own of silent mornings until this time. For some years, we kept silence in the morning for probably several years, all the years we traveled, five years or something up to then. Once you've lived in that kind of environment, it's very hard to, uh, for me, <laughs> to live in this kind of environment where I am now. But I seem able but again, the call came to go to another teacher and I just had to meet her. And she was the wife of Muji's teacher, Muji's master, Papaji, Punjaji, HWL Punja, Gangamira, living just down the road a few hours, a couple of hours in Portugal. And I just had to, I had to meet her. I'd since then developed my who am I, my Ramana practice and developed a very close connection with Ramana during some periods of time in the forest. Again, illness kind of threw me on my back a few times along the way and put me in a hut with nothing but a Ramana poster on the wall, I think, for about six weeks. And it was just like me and Ramana in silence, you know, that was, that was it. Um, that was like a solitary retreat, really, without, again, non-intentional and all my solitary retreats have never been intentional, actually. They've been, <laughs> they've just been thrust upon me, circumstantially. <laughs> and uh, they're a gift, you know. And I think all solitary retreats, true solitary retreats are a gift. They're not something we can do. Again, I think the going and doing is like, that's practice. That's a warm-up. Mm. That's getting a feel for feeling comfortable around silence and solitude. But true silence and solitude, again, we, we need our butt kicking into it. You know, we really need, like, picking up by the scruff of the neck like a mama cat does. And this is how I met many people who felt like this at the ashram, like they'd just been picked up by the scruff of the neck and dropped off in the forest, going, what am I doing here? And then just meeting it and engaging with it fully. And I'm, I met my new master before I knew it without having expected to leave another one. <laughs> and uh, still all the while a Zen Buddhist, 
And everyone going, yeah, yeah, you're a Zen Buddhist. Yeah, we understand you're here. We're Advaita Vedanta, but that's, you know, you can't <laughs> discover this. I was regarded as a monk by all of my teachers. And it's just how it was. Just how it was. Just like I've only, I don't even remember when I first shaved my head, but that's probably when I first, first took Jukai Zen lay ordination. And I met Ganga and I, I couldn't leave. I just couldn't leave. It was the same thing again. And I went back and forth a few times and ended up um, lived in a tent on a cliff top for a little while just to be there rather than not have a house. Slept in the back of a car to be there. Borrowed cars, no, <laughs> borrowed tents. Didn't have kind of a stick or a bone to my name, really. And then suddenly an opportunity to just go and live in the forest came up alongside that, just down the road, within a day of naming her as my master and recognizing that. Just an opportunity to rent a place I couldn't afford came up. And I said, you know, I think they need caretakers. So if they ever need one, let me know. And the next day I got a call from someone who sounded like an old friend who'd never met me and just said, come and be our caretaker. And for two years, we lived 4K from the nearest um, village, tiny little village of like, I think, 17 was the population in, in the winter. And 38 was the population in the summer. And you drive up the mountains, forested hills. And our neighbours were honeybees and wild boar. And the occasional quite large butterfly and the night jar, and the nightingale, and the Milky Way. And I, I could barely go to bed there, because it was just, I just wanted to sit with the sky, morning or night, and the moon, and the sound of the wind and the trees. And this is where I really started to learn, because it was like the ashram, but without the ashram, it was great. It was like... <laughs> In the, in the end, the ashram was getting in the way of the next sort of step that was needed. Mm. And so it was like that environment, but without the people or the, the noise or the distractions or the work. And the poetry really started to take more form then. And for two years like that, and just writing without any intention or just because I couldn't help myself, really. And starving a little now and then and not affording even water now and then. And people stuffing like, money in my pockets now and then and learning to accept dana. And it began to just develop like that. And it was during that time that my Patreon um, was offered to me and I said no. <laughs> I didn't need that. <laughs> mm. I didn't want the hassle. Mm. And I was told, no, I'll build it for you. I was like, no, it's too much hassle. <laughs> like, no, just make this easy. Say yes. And after being really kind of hunted over it, it was like, oh, look, will you go away if I just say yes? And it was like, yes. I was like, okay, yes. Go, <laughs> you build it, you know, thinking that's, that's it. No, it won't come back. <laughs> and so out of all this hunger and this solitude and although I was living there in the forest with my partner again 
we we were living in silence and solitude as just as two monks would share cells in a building and we have here we have our own spaces to live and work and practice in this is my zen space and her tibetan space is the other end of the house yeah the the poetry just found its own course through that and the friends who created the patreon to support me were tired of seeing me having no food and no water and no money and no roof over my head if anything went and changed mm. and started to help kind of put collections of my poetry together. Cause I also couldn't, I don't know how these books are going to come about. I've told you about these books. I still don't know. I have all the skills to make them, but I've got no idea how I'm going to do that because I don't, I can't actually do it. It's like, like, um, I mostly just kind of sit with people and speak or write poetry or help them to find the silence to write it. Did that answer your question? <laughs> this is so interesting. Well, I mean, because this is so interesting because this is so, I, I absolutely, can I just say I love this because this is so not like any other interview we've ever done. Like we're not even near any of the questions we normally ask. I'm, I'm ready to just sit here and let you call. You can talk for the next hour. This is spectacular. <laughs> I'm fine Are with it. Are we off peace? <laughs> oh, it's, 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 it's wonderful. Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm reminded reminded so much of um of our of our other monastic interviews of Elias and of Paul yeah. and uh, you know you 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 certainly are a monk whether you've ever been in a cloister or not i think is immaterial but mm. you know if if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck it's a monk yeah. and <laughs> but um so so you know thank you for just being you Thank you for listening to the Encountering Silence podcast. If you enjoy our ongoing conversation about the beauty of silence and its meaning in our lives, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or at our website, EncounteringSilence.com. You can subscribe to our email list at our website. Connect with us on social media, on Twitter at Silence Podcast, or on Facebook at Encountering Silence. And please visit www.patreon.com slash Encountering Silence. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash Encountering Silence to become a patron of this podcast. Your financial support will allow us to continue creating new episodes and spreading the message of how vital silence is to our social, spiritual, and physical well-being. Thank you.